Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that roams through the world of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories including Ford patents an app that detects bad smells in a car and they're going to reintroduce the brand name that was the favourite of Chairman Mao. And in our interviews we reminisce about those road bridges that have a very elegant design. And we discuss how the market is going with classic cars in this COVID-19 environment. And finally, with some quirky news of sorts, Brian Smith and I reflect on the ongoing changes to travel behaviour. You can find more information by going to drivenmedia.com.au and previous programs are podcast on iTunes or Spotify. Or you might like to go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City. But let's get going with the program. First, the news. Convenience and cost are two important reasons to share a car. But the sharing can sometimes be a bit on the nose. Catching a taxi or car sharing can be made unpleasant, not only by the way the vehicle is driven but the smell on the inside of the vehicle. Ford has patented a process where a car can determine what odours exist within a vehicle and relay the information to the potential passenger. And it's not just a case of a typical or average offensive aroma. The system can get your personal preferences as you approach the vehicle and give you personally relevant information. It might not just be offensive smells, but also if you are allergic to, say, peanut odour or pollen from flowers. Would you buy a car brand that was associated with a famous world leader? It might depend on the ideology or the lifestyle of that leader. A US firm, Silk EV, plans to invest the equivalent of over $2 Australian dollars to make sports cars with China's FAW Group. The brand name will be Honshi, which was the preferred make of the late leader, Chairman Mao. Honshi, the oldest Chinese passenger mark, was launched in 1958, and the name means Red Flag, which is clearly a symbol of communist China. But the first models were clearly not for the proletariat. They were for dignitaries and party leaders. Later models went down market, but the last generation of vehicles in 2013 again tried to be cars for ministerial-level bureaucrats. Today, party officials are said to prefer Audis. The lockdowns from COVID-19 have forced us to consider how far and how often we need to travel. Europe wants the trend to go on in the long term. The Belgian government is so impressed with the quieter streets and cleaner air in its city centre that it will give priority to pedestrians and cyclists within the city's ring road, the heart of the city known as the Pentagon, after the lockdowns are over. Drivers will need special permits to enter, showing their vehicles emit low pollution and will be limited to 20 kilometres per hour speed limit. Brussels Mayor Philippe Close says the measures are expected to take effect within a week. Bois de la Cambra, the central park of Brussels, with a lake that is sadly subject to pollution, will also remain closed to traffic even after the lockdown ends. 
Will COVID-19 be the trigger to implement urban planning measures that favour bikes and pedestrians? Cities as diverse as Berlin and Bogota are using so-called tactical urbanism to take road space from cars and give it to people on foot and on bicycles by creating or widening footpaths and bike lanes with brightly painted concrete blocks and planters. Now New Zealand's Transport Minister, Julie-Anne Genter, has invited their cities to apply for 90% funding to widen sideworks and carve out temporary cycleways, measures that can be put in place in hours and days, rather than the weeks and months that it can often take to design, approve and install such infrastructure. Extra space for people will enable key workers and others to maintain two metres of physical distance when walking or cycling. Some car names have had unfortunate meanings. Now the electric Mini appears to have run into a modern naming problem. In the past, Chevrolet called one of its cars the Nova, which unfortunately means doesn't work in Spanish. Volkswagen's Jetta can sound like Yetta, which means a streak of bad luck in Italian. Audi's TT Coupe, said quickly, sounds like the French word for a severed head. And Fiat's Uno means one in Italian, but fool in Finnish. Now a report from Inside EVs says that Mini were about to release a model with new asymmetric designed wheels based on the three-pronged UK power plug. They will now call it the Power Spoke, rather than their original choice, Corona Spoke. Apparently Corona is a long-standing electrical term that now has an altogether different association. And that has been the news. The post-war boom saw major road construction across the country, which included many new bridges. There is much to learn from the life and times of this period. Recently, a well-respected bridge engineer who had worked for the New South Wales Road Authority passed away. Ray Wedgwood was technically excellent, but he also had a passion for the aesthetics of a bridge. It helps if it looks good. During his career, Ray's manager at the time, Brian Pearson, wrote a book, Aesthetic of Bridges. The Road Authority has subsequently put out a publication, Design Guidelines to Improve the Appearance of Bridges in New South Wales. But his long career also reflected a time when the professional engineer was valued within a more nurturing environment of the government authority. A man who was there at the time is our good friend Ken Dobinson, who joins us on the line now. Ken, did you know Ray well? I knew Ray very well, actually. He was not an, a uh, dominant feature as such. He was just the, what you would describe as the quiet achiever. Therefore, he was a very quiet person, but a very competent and able person. And, of course, in due course, by the, by the time he left the government, he was probably viewed as the preeminent structural engineer in this country. One of the bridges he's famous for, but perhaps the last uh, bridge, major bridge, was the beautiful Anzac Bridge in Sydney across Blackwattle Bay. How hard did they have to convince you to make that a cable stay bridge? A very, very good example of Ray Wedgwood. Ray had just been appointed the chief engineer bridges in the Road and Traffic Authority at the time 
and he presented well-reasoned and excellent cases. And he did that with the Anzac Bridge, or it wasn't called the Anzac Bridge then. But he produced a wonderful report, which he came up and explained all to me and described all the options and that sort of thing. And he was arguing for a cable-stayed bridge compared to a supported cantilever bridge. The supported cantilever bridge was was somewhat cheaper, a little shorter, but it had its feet in the in the water, whereas the cable stayed bridge had it out. After a lot of discussion and arguments on his behalf, I remember quite clearly stamping it approved. Ray, you haven't convinced me that this is the best option, but it's certainly the best option in to Sydney to that great coat hanger we had over the road and we approved it. Well, if you look at urban design now, there's much talk about things like Circular Quay and how the Carl Expressway, which among other things is a roof over the railway line, but how that detracts from the aesthetics of the city. In many ways, was Ray ahead of his time in understanding that the acceptance of a bridge and the support for doing things properly was based on its looks? How important was that, do you think, or was that one of the important messages that he managed to promote? Ray promoted it to a great extent, and as I said, with the uh, Blue Island Bridge, the Anzac Bridge, there's a perfect example of it. I don't think you could imagine today any other bridge in that position except that delightful cable stayed bridge. But Ray had a wonderful introduction to blending structures and particularly bridges into the environment. He came on stream fairly early in his career when we were building the first stage of the Sydney-Newcastle freeway through the Hawkesbury Valley. And at that stage, we were pretty hard-nosed engineers you know you build things to do for a particular purpose but with the Sydney Newcastle freeway we had imposed on us and I use that advisedly a new architect who became a leader in his field a fellow called Peter Spooner very well known today as the initiator of blending architecture in with the environment and he became a great friend. He was held at distance being an architect in an engineering environment at first, but he became a great friend and advised us on how to blend in that road to the environment through which it cut. One of the key things was to get bridges that worked in their local environment. And of course, Ray was on that job with Brian Pearson. Brian Pearson, of course, wrote that book, Aesthetics of Bridges. Was that a major step for a road authority to show that they were, if you pardon the pun, bridging that gap from hardcore structural? There's almost a, you know, if you show a strong structure, you're showing your strength. But if you show a an empathetic structure, you're showing your sense of aesthetic values. Was Brian Pearson's work critical in the DMR? Absolutely. Brian was the leading up the bridge section when we built the Sydney Newcastle Freeway. He'd just come into the job and he wanted the bridges to look right. And he aligned beautifully with this Peter Spooner. Today, except for Peter and Brian's contribution, of course, you wouldn't have the Joel's Bridge halfway up the other side of from the Hawkesbury. 
wonderful bridges sitting in there in, in all their glory. The engineering alternative that we developed at the time was huge retaining walls on either side to hold a massive dirt and rock in its place and we built the freeway across it. I don't think you could imagine today looking at that environment that what those horrible <laughs> retaining walls would have looked like compared to the Joel's Bridges. It was a time of bridges, wasn't it? I, is my memory right? The last ferry to remo- be removed off the Pacific Highway was in about 1963 or 65, so we needed to build a lot of bridges, didn't we? Yes, it was a period of bridges, and I think the period of bridges was probably led to a large extent by Brian Pearson, you know, highly supported by the likes of Ray Wedgwood, because we went through a very, very heavy period of building bridges, and not only building bridges, but building new style bridges, bridges that had curves in them and, and humps and went around corners and those sort of things, which, of course, really took off when bridge building or bridge design moved into the electronic age and those great things we used to have to do with hand calculators were suddenly able to be done by computer. And that was Ken Dobinson, a former director of the Department of Main Roads, who was considered by many as one of the brightest forward-thinking executives who had an engineering background. You can hear the full interview with Ken by going to our website, drivenmedia.com.au. If you would like to nominate a bridge you think is one of the most elegant, send us an email to feedback at drivenmedia.com.au and we will discuss them and other feedback in our next program. You're listening to Overdrive. Newcastle sales have taken a huge hit with the COVID-19 pandemic and lockdown conditions. Second-hand sales of modern cars are said to be struggling, but what about classic vehicles? If you pardon the transport imagery, let's hear it from the horse's mouth. Christoph Borobon is Shannon's National Auction Manager, and he joins us on the line now. Christoph, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, David. Are auctions different without an audience? Yes, look, I think we've all uh, we've all had to, to adapt to uh, running auctions a different way, and I think we've uh, we've seen a lot of the international auction houses uh, go down that path in the last month, and we've seen a couple of the Australian auction houses do the same as well. So you know we're we're staying online and uh, running timed online auctions, and um, you know that's probably the way forward for the next few months. Are they different? What what's the characteristics? Uh, look, I guess from our point of view, it's hard to comment uh, from what the others are doing exactly, but from our point of view, the only thing that changes is that obviously we're not running a live auction. We've live auctioneers on the actual auction day, and it's probably around the viewing where uh, we're actually organising deals for uh, interested buyers of, of cars where we'll do a FaceTime or video call with those buyers and walk them around the cars until obviously the restrictions are lifted. You know, that's the way we're going to carry out the, the virtual viewing, I guess. Prior to this, how many cars were bought sight unseen? That's a really good question. Uh, it's a conversation I've had probably more regularly recently with people saying that uh, on average, we sell probably 30 to 40% of all our cars at auction sight unseen, every auction. The digital world must have opened up the international or the, certainly the broader, even around Australia market, potential for your sale, which, of course, has the vehicles in one location. Has the breadth of interest widened? 
Look, I think we, I think it is widening, and we sell probably uh, again, you know, a similar number. Twenty to thirty percent of our cars are sold interstate and overseas every auction. So it is, it is a fairly large number. And it is something that yeah, our customers have, uh, you know, who have been around for a long time and know how we operate, obviously understand, uh, you know, how, how the system works. And they're obviously very comfortable in bidding that way and purchasing that way. Will you keep it up after we remove the COVID-19 lockdowns and things? Do you think it has evolved your process a little? Look, I think it's a process that's definitely uh, got a place in the marketplace in general. I mean, we've we've previously done online auctions, but uh, we've done those ma- mainly for memorabilia items rather than uh, and collections rather than uh, cars. Hmm. But I think moving forward, uh, it definitely is an opportunity for uh, you know looking at collections of um, you know museums or private collections, and potentially for us to do to, to do a lot more in that online space. Absolutely. America, the auctions are more like an evangelical religious festival uh, without an audience. Does that change the dynamic? Look, I think maybe some of the big auctions, yeah. I mean, uh, Pebble Beach is, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to go to Pebble Beach Car Week two years ago, and uh, and, and that is an eye-opener because you've got people flying in from all over the world to attend this event, and you've got the four or five big major auction houses represented at that event. And, uh, you know, they've, they've got some of the best stock that you'd ever see. And, you know, a, a combined with a combined sale of three or four hundred million US for that week, it is the, uh, you know, what we call the, the parameter of, uh, of the auction uh, week every year. I think that's the stage and, and it is an event that attracts so many buyers from all over the world that sometimes their results are far greater than what you would normally see in a normal, uh, normal sort of standalone sale. Christoph. Can I ask an honest question? Can you understand the American auctioneer? It seems to me they rabbit on at such a frantic pace. It's more like singing where the words don't count. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? We've uh, we've seen a variety of auctioneers all over the world. I mean, from uh, you know all all the way from Dutch auctioneers to British auctioneers and uh, U.S. auctioneers. But uh, yeah, some of them do talk or sing very quickly and. Uh, can be probably difficult for uh, for people to keep up, yes. The current situation, is there a period where there is most interest? That your, your auction soon to come up seems to have quite a lot from the sort of 50s and 60s. Is that always been good or has these, this lockdown dynamic changed our interest, heightened an interest in certain areas? Really good question. I, I don't think so. I, I think, you know, the interest has probably remained, you know, across the board where it's always been. I, I think, you know, we, uh, traditionally speaking, we've always put in uh, 50s, 60s, 70s and uh, now, I guess, 80s model cars. And, uh, and I think that's probably where the, the, the good interest lies at the moment in the marketplace. And, and I think if you look at our list of cars, there's a lot of affordable classics as well. There's a lot of twenty to $50,000 classics um, also. So, it's not a, a big spend for, for many collectors. It's quite an affordable uh, marketplace. And I think that's probably, uh, you know, where we're playing at the moment is uh, I think it's, that part of the market's working well. I think some of the cars in the three, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000 and upwards are probably struggling a little bit in, in the current market. But I think, you know, anything, you know, around the sort of up to $100,000 in the classics are, are still performing very well. With lockdowns, do you think more people may get back to doing that restoration project, given that they uh, can't have as many distractions? 
Absolutely. I, I think we are seeing that. I mean, we, we've run a, Shannon's have run what we call a driveway competition, show us what's in your driveway type uh, competition. And I think what's emerged out of that is there's a lot of people commenting on uh, how they've had long-term projects or projects sitting there that they, uh, they've been time poor in getting to and uh, now seems to provide the right opportunity for uh, people to get onto these projects. I think we're, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of people in garages and sheds working on those projects at the moment, which is a good thing as well. Christoph, it's uh, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. David, thank you for having us on the show. And that is Christoph Borabond, Shannon's National Auction Manager. And things are going along in their own way with uh, technology developing, which perhaps will enhance when uh, all this uh, COVID-19 settles down and we will go on with the fraternity of classic cars. You're listening to Overdrive. And now it's time for some quirky news. And on the line we have Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. How are you going? G'day, David. Good. I'm, I'm sort of stuck working at home in this pandemic period. Brian, there is a decrease in traffic volumes, of course, uh, particularly, I think, in the off-peak period. Is that going to mean that people are going to be more laid back and not worried about getting to the next lights because the queue won't be as long? Or does it mean people might see it as a racetrack? Well, David, I think I think we, we all sort of expect or, or see that people will drive faster when there's less traffic around. And I think that's what we're starting to see. Many cities are, are reporting that uh, people are speeding uh, more in these uh, less busy streets. And of course, we were discussing um, earlier the, that issue that, you know, more people are walking and I know you're walking every day and I'm, I'm going for walks. And, and with less traffic, it's quite pleasant to walk. But I guess it uh, to keep social distance means that maybe the current footpath widths we have aren't wide enough. I've taken to walking in the in the roadway on some quieter streets and, and this raises a, a problem you've raised, David, about not just the speed but really the difference in speed. Speed differential, I think, is a major issue that is often overlooked. I wonder whether people's travel behaviour will change. So we mentioned the footpaths perhaps being too narrow for people to walk with social distancing. Well, several cities, New York and others, are widening footpaths, are closing traffic lanes and putting in cycle lanes temporarily. Do you think in the longer term this might change the way we value the space in our roads in the same way that I think we're changing the way we value those kind of workers that we've always overlooked, the delivery people and the people who stack shelves in in Woolworths, we're now realising they're essential. Well, maybe we might now realise that walking and cycling is a much more essential and important mode now or post-pandemic than it was before. We are now starting to have a whole range of mechanisms that are pointing us towards prioritising and understanding what we're using our space for. And we might well be able to then allocate it much more specifically. You talked about bikeways. You know, there's a busway, which with an autonomous bus that is self-guided, is fantastic. But you can also run freight down it. Mm. But I don't necessarily mean it's a six-axle truck. It might be something in the inner city that is more adaptable to that. The other aspect I'm a little concerned about is... Uh the potential impact on public transport in that, you know, I'm seeing some businesses asking their their workers to travel by private car to avoid exposure on PT. One thing I did see, David, is that early in the, the kind of pandemic, 
I noticed how few people wore masks or took care on, on public transport about making themselves or other people ill. When you travel in, in um, Southeast Asia, Hong Kong and places like that, Singapore, you see lots of people regularly wearing masks on PT. So when people have a cold, they'll put the mask on and to avoid spreading it. And, and I think we, we're not very careful about public transport. And maybe one of the things we need to think about is, is a new sort of process for how to use public transport when you're unwell or, or to avoid passing on disease. So I think it'll be important to pe- get people back into public transport as soon as possible. In the pandemic that uh, was 1919, sometimes referred to as the Spanish flu, but more pneumonic, I think is a better word, not to bring nationality as though they were to blame into it, unless you're an American politician. But the point that was there, a man was fined for not wearing a mask. It became mandatory to wear it on public transport during that pandemic. He'd pulled his mask down to have a cigarette. (laughs) Priorities, David. (laughs) Yeah, kill yourself one way or the other, I think, uh, in, in difference both to yourself and to the people around you as well. Indeed. So I think you're right, and I think it will impact because of this very considerable opportunity to try other things, yet I think it's really critical for the transport profession to be measuring not only just the volumes, but like the household transport surveys they do, you get down to what are the parameters of people's decision. You and I can make an assumption as to why people are doing that by just measuring what they're doing, but to get to the real whys can be many and varied, and that's what we need to be looking at as well in this time. A lot of surveys are being stopped. I think in some ways they ought to at least continue, if not try some more as well. Yes, so we can actually record what what happens, what what the the impacts are. And why. And the why is important, David, that behavioural side of things, that we know that people make quite a strange travel choices you know they'll on a whim they'll they'll take one route over another or decide to use a particular mode not based on that trip they're about to make but something completely different that influences that decision and uh, we're not very good at, at digging deeply into that a lot of our modeling is based on shortest time shortest distance and least cost whereas for example at night a lot of choices on how well lit the walking path may be. Uh, If it's raining, it it varies. There are so many factors in it. And I think that's made some of our straight line projections quite inaccurate. Yes. Ryan, lovely to talk to you. Not quirky news as such, but uh, very important stuff. Thanks for your time. Thank you. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Ken Dobinson, Christoph Borobon, Brian Smith, Jordan Trembath and Paul Just for their great help in putting this program together. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au and previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.